Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. We are again in a new country, a new country we have not really explored before or talked about, and I'm very excited to do so. So with me is Eva from Aimwerk Distillery in Iceland. Uh, you may know the distillery for its line of Floki whiskeys and single malts, but we're going to talk about that and more about Iceland today. So Eva, welcome. Thank you. So uh, yeah, I've been really looking forward to this. Um, thank you in advance to Fred Barnett, who connected us uh, through Anthem. Uh, so let's jump right in. So, you know, Flok, uh, and I may say Floki when I mean Aimwerk Distillery. So. No problem. Not, not interchangeable, but yeah. <laughs> uh, forgive me in advance. Uh, so yeah, so let's just start where it began. The uh, what's the the origin story? How did Aimwerk come to be? Uh, it was mainly focusing on can we produce whiskey from or spirit from Icelandic grown barley. That is kind of the starting point of this whole whole saga. Is how is it possible to use the barley that is now possible to grow in Iceland? Is it possible to use it for whiskey? And that was kind of the first step that we were taking. Can we use the Icelandic barley? Then, of course, it was figuring out a way to use the Icelandic barley because it is different from barley that is grown in war warmer climates. And then just on from that is, yeah, we can make spirit from Icelandic barley. Can we win awards for it? What can we do in the aging? And But the main focus is always we want to use barley only grown in Iceland. That was kind of our, and still is kind of our focal point. And we'll delve a little more into that because uh, having tried the single malt, the Floki single malt mm -hmm. and the Floki uh, sheep dung smoked single malt, the barley is something else. It's uh, in a good way. It's It, it gives yeah. really different flavor profile to it. Um, so for us, the summer or the growing season is really short. Uh, we do often get enough daylight because we have 24-hour daylight in the growing season. But we are using varieties that need 90 days above 10 degrees to grow and to ripen. Not always possible. Most summer we will get at least some of the fields up to enough so we can use the barley, but it is tricky to grow barley in Iceland. And um, it's always a little bit anxious over the summer. Is the summer going to be good enough that it's going to give us enough of barley? And I think that's a good entry into just Iceland in, in, in general. So, uh, you know, the, Einverk Distillery is on the west coast of Iceland. It's southwest. just out southwest. Yeah. yeah. Um, just south uh, of kind of Reykjavik yeah. Central. Mm -hmm. uh, and for uh, American listeners, a comparison in terms of Iceland size, it's, you know, it's about the same size as the state of Kentucky, which for this podcast is an apt comparison. Um. But obviously, it's very different terrain. 
Yes, uh, and also um, kind of big part of the country is unhabitable. You can't live there. It's too mount. Just you're too high above sea level, so you can't live there. Um, mainly, the population is living closer to the shore. You will have farm farms all the way up to the mountains, but mainly. And the biggest population lives in the capital area. So we have what, two thirds of the population living in the capital area. Yeah. So to get that barley, are you, are these farms that you own or farms that you contract with? So we own a farm ourselves. So what the barley we have been using is mainly grown on our own farm. And then we contract fields. Uh, we are looking into expanding now, meaning our fields are not big, big enough. So we are now starting to contract other farmers. Um, sorry. <clears throat> um, so we have to, but you have to have a dryer that is legalized for human consumption, which we have. And there are not many dryers in Iceland fit for products for human consumption. So we have, I think one of three dryers there is in the country that is fit for human consumption. So, and we managed to link it up to the hot water resource at the farm. So instead of using oil to dry the barley, we now only run the uh, dryer on hot water. So it's also helped us a lot in, well, the carbon footprint got lower for the whiskey. It wasn't high, but still, we managed to get a little bit lower by doing that. When Iceland is, is known, I think, among many things, for volcanoes, for geothermal heat, um, which you've got plenty of that. But yes, we do. But translating it to work for the barley and for the process, that could be a little more difficult. Mm, yeah. Well, not here, because uh, since the 1950s, Iceland mainly heat all houses with hot water. So we have been using the hot water also for drying fish and other products. So for us, it isn't something that is different. It's not different in Iceland. It's different somewhere where you don't have all this geothermal energy. Gotcha. All right. So that's going to come back to a later question. And I'm sure you know which one it is, but we'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, so with Iceland being where it is just um, putting a little historical perspective to uh, the story goes that as far as I understand it, that it was kind of found in 868 around there. Yeah. Uh, so not we really have, inhabited before then. Yeah. yeah. So we have the Icelandic sagas and we have Landnama, which is one of the sagas and Landnama kind of, it's supposed to explain how Iceland was set. We also have Saga uh, Erik Sreda, who settled then Greenland. And then his son actually sailed over to now America, what they called Wineland, Greenland. So they're the, the Nordic um, Vikings, they were explorers a lot. But in recent years, we have kind of found out more stuff on how Iceland was settled and probably Iceland was used as a hunting ground much more 
earlier to settlement. But it was chosen in a certain time in history only to focus on what Landnoma said and not kind of focus on what else could have happened. So everyone is taught these Norwegian sagas, but reality is probably a little bit different. So close to our farm is actually man-made caves and Norwegian men did not know how to man how to build caves. This is something that comes from Ireland or the Celtics. And these uh, caves, they predate settlement. And if you start to read Landnama really closely and draw up where Vikings settled, it's really weird that they did not settle, especially there in the south, they were not settling the flat land that would have been more suitable for uh, farming and agriculture. They settled more up in the hills. And again, as soon as you're up in hills in Iceland, you're going to have worse... Um, the, the soil is not good as good. And you're also as further from the ocean and higher up you go, you can't grow as much. Why don't you settle closer to the ocean? And the, probably the biggest reason was there was someone there before you. So you couldn't settle it. It wasn't that the land couldn't be used. It was just someone there. But because Norris Trutlison, who, who writes most of the books in the 1200s, he is from Norwegian relations or his forefathers were Norwegians. So he wrote about his forefathers. So we, there is now there is kind of starting to be a debate on how it is, but officially, yes, Iceland was settled 874 by Ingolver Arnarsson, who sailed with all of the South coast and then settled in Reykjavik. That is kind of the official story of settlement in Iceland, but Recently, we found out it's not how it was. And that's it's still it's a fascinating story. And you're right from a development standpoint, it wouldn't make sense to to be up on the hills, right? You want easy access to the ocean and to trading and such. So, um, yeah, I look forward to finding out more about who may have been there before. And um, is is there any? I guess before moving on, is there any evidence that um, be, because the Celtic cultures did not leave as many kind of written records, certainly nothing comparable to the Icelandic to the Icelandic and Nordic sagas. <clears throat> um, is there any evidence that the two yes. populations? Yeah. So there was actually done a uh, decode. They actually did a genetic test on the Icelandic genome. And our mother genome comes from Celtic, and the father genome is coming from Norway. So all the oh. microcountry and everything of that is Celtic. But for the population to be this high Celtic, you have to have a population of Celts much more than they just took the slaves with them from Celtic. Right. So, and then also we have a lot of words in the Icelandic language and a lot of names of mountains and uh, hills mm. um, that come straight from the Celts. We have been de debating about this, me and my dad, especially because on our farm, we have two hills next to each other that are called the Demons. And in Celtic, Demon means two peaks standing next to each other. And my dad was like, no, they had the slaves. And I was like, dad, you would never ever allow a slave to name anything in your land. You wouldn't do that because 
it is the point of slavery. You're taking away their language, their humanity in a way. You wouldn't allow them to name something in your in your land. So we have a lot of the words coming from the Celtic. So probably this was much more Celtic than the Norwegian came. But then in the 12th century, you had someone from Norwegian relations writing all of the sagas. So, but how it was in the total reality, nobody, I think we can't even find out, sadly. But, yeah, I'm curious to look if there are, are there <clears> any, um, any more, I'm going to look into those studies, but also more studies about how the Celts got over there, quite frankly. They yeah. had, um, because we know, so we know Papar, which were monks, Celtic monks. We know them, and that predates settlement. And there are stories in Ireland about Irish Papar. And in Ireland, it's talk about the Green Islands six days north. And that fits to sail to Iceland. You sail north six days, you will hit the Green Island. Um, so we have indications of that the Celtics knew much more about Iceland and probably had settlement here. But again, it is the sagas that have been focused on. So, Having read a lot of them, it's hard not to find yourself believing them because they're so well-written and you know vivid. Oh, God, no. <laughs> there are yeah. so many things in them that you go like, hmm, not possible. So right. I think yeah. because we read these sagas in school, so you start sure. learning these sagas just when you're 12, 13, you start to read the sagas. And I think my favorite one is is one of the um, uh, the battle scene is actually from Gisla Sagar Sursunar. Gisli lived here around Reykjavik. So there's a guy and they are in the, in the uh, battle and his cut, his cut right open. So his intestines completely fell out. First of all, they couldn't make the swords that sharp at that time. So it's not impossible. But the thing was, what he did is he took his intestine, he put them back in, he took his belt tied around his waist, had a half an hour monologue, and then jumped off a cliff and killed one more as he was, as he fell on him with his sword in front of him. Um, first of all, if your intestines fall out, you're, you're not going to be able to put them in and tie a rope around it <laughs> that's just the first thing so a lot of the battle scenes if you go into it if you know biology you know it is not possible for the bottle scenes to take place as they did so but they are it's interesting to read them and it is the only thing we have but also they are written in the 1200s but they go from human to human from the 800 when they are supposed to happen or eight, 900 when they were supposed to happen. So and all of us know is that you fish, you catch a fish that is this big. And then the fifth person that is telling the story of the fish is suddenly this big. Yep. So we do of course know how stories, what happened to stories when they travel from person to person. So some of them are, are kind of, but it's, it's the only thing we have. <laughs> It, it's understandable I, i'm again I, I think i read them more and i promise we'll get back to the distillery right after this is that uh, i read them uh in a medieval studies 
mm. class and, and first study. And um, I mean, yeah, the, the tales are mainly, they're also fantastical. You've got giants and trolls and creatures and all of these things. And, but in terms of a, of a history, if you will, the, uh, I can see it, it's something that was gone off of for hundreds of years, because that's, again, as you say, that's what you had um, before real, like, you know, archaeology, sociology started to question uh, questions like you just mentioned, like, why would two hills next to each other that fit perfectly in the Celtic language be named by a slave? They wouldn't. No. So um, it's fascinating. I, I admit to not knowing nearly enough about Iceland and I, I, and its history. And I would love to. And um, I, so that goes into, and this ties back to the distillery as I promised, which is, so if you bring together, let's say the um, Celtic culture, but also obviously the Viking culture, Norwegian, um, Scandinavian culture, what, does the Icelandic drinking culture look like? Well, um, here we have more of probably again, uh, and this is in every everywhere in the world. Everyday things was not written down as much as some political things. So knowing that, but um, we probably drank much more water than we realized because every we have running water everywhere in Iceland. We have abundance of clean, fresh water. It's only in the east part and the west fjords of Iceland that you will have not as good resource of water. And it's mainly groundwater that we're getting up. So we have a young, uh, well, all of the country is young. And if you're mm -hmm. looking at the geocultural it's young so we have um we don't have these hard rocks we are having lava that the filters the water and you will have groundwater coming up so probably people drank more water and milk than we realize today but we do know that they brewed beer we know that the vikings had the knowledge of brewing beer and brewing mead but again mead is from honey Honey, you can't get in Iceland. We don't have honeybees here. And they actually, we do have few bee farmers today, and but it is tricky in Iceland because we use bees at the farm too, because we have few, we have a greenhouse with few apple trees and and um, cherry and, and plums. So we do always have a box of bees just fertilize the trees. Last summer, the bees died because it froze in May. So mm. if you get frost at that time, the bees will sadly die. So it is tricky, but we do have, I think, about 20 bee farmers in Iceland right now that make some bee, but bees are not native to Iceland. And they are, we have the bumblebee that is native to Iceland, or I can't swear when it came here, but at least... For the past 200 years, we probably had bumblebees, but not the bee that makes honey. So, so mead was something that disappeared rather quickly. We also know that the Vikings were able to grow barley to begin with. Um, 
but then around 1200 where we get the civil war which is called Sturtlungaöldin then we know that they were fighting over land and that probably meant we got a drop in the temperature and then again around 1500 we get a drop again in the temperature meaning that after 1500 we couldn't grow barley in Iceland not until uh, it was in 1850s or 60s that the Danish king actually sent scientists up to Iceland to try to teach Icelandic people to grow the barley again and there is also a quite uh, because the Danish king didn't quite send us always the best stuff and he actually closed off that we couldn't do trades with the uh, Hansa or the people from Hamburg we were not allowed to trade with anyone else than the Danish king in a certain time in Icelandic history mm-hmm. and around that time we know that really bad barley was shipped up to Iceland. And at that point we get the um, witch hunting in Iceland. So probably linked to getting barley with uh, fungicides on them. Mm, that, yeah. that makes full sense. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think, I think the American listener will probably know, but it, a comparative reference, the Salem witch trials are thought to be one of the explanations is yeah, ergot fungus, ergot poisoning just made them yeah. hallucinate, go paranoid yeah. and crazy. And um, it's it's also amazing to think it's a fungus that we still deal with today in our well, crops. Luckily, it's too cold in Iceland. We don't have it. True. <laughs> so we don't need to use fungicides or pesticides here in Iceland because we don't have the pests or the fungi because it's it's simply too cold. <laughs> That's that's fascinating i the again I, I i know very little about icelandic history and and culture and i i this is a similar experience to um a couple of weeks ago i was able to interview <clears throat> pardon me i was able to interview um ansi from uh Terempeli in finland so mm. opposite side of the nordic world but the same idea kind of applied where I just went into it and I, I knew very little about the culture, uh, the, the stories, the history. So um, there's a lot more to to learn. And it's fun to learn these things through the lens of both an historian and also just a whiskey drinker um, to figure out, okay, they got barley back, but after the, particularly after the little ice age, um, but it yeah. was probably bad barley. And so was there, so the you know the settlers would have had so they would have had barley for a time beer was brewed um mead initially but it died out because as you said that until recently there were no honey bees um before we, they would import of course wine and in a certain period of history you had a lot of friends uh, sailors coming to fish around Iceland. You had Spanish sailors coming to fish around Iceland and also British sailors. So you would be able to import wine and beer. And when the spirits came, of course, spirit was imported as well. Then what happens is um, before 1850, there was a law in Iceland that if you don't own or run a farm, you have to be signed to someone else's farm. And you could only switch farms in 
um, it's now in April and May that you were able to switch farms and move. Well, it's a little bit like a football, guys. You can only, there's a certain window you can be sold or traded. And if you didn't own or run a farm, you were not allowed to live somewhere else. So these laws and regulations, they are taken away in 1860s in Denmark. And then that applies to Iceland as well. But probably a little bit before that, people started not to kind of go by the rule. So we don't have towns forming in Iceland until after 1850. So the city of Reykjavik and a lot of the towns are only kind of built up in the 1850s. And then you have people coming, moving from the farms down to the seashore. And um, if anyone has worked at a farm, you know it. it is the animal that is going to control your life. It's either the cow or the goat. You have to milk them, you have to take care of them, and they will control your life. Even just the chickens at our farm, they will control our lives. We need to take care of the chickens. <laughs> That's always first thing you do in the morning, you go and get the eggs. The last thing you do in the evening, you make sure that the chickens are okay, they are in their house. But the animal will control your day a lot. If you move down to the seashore, of course, the weather is going to have more impact on how you control your day. And suddenly people start to have free time. Now, what are you going to do with your free time? And that is where it comes into it. This happens in most Scandinavia. Uh, is that Templars were kind of going away from U.S. over to Scandinavia again. So you had people from Scandinavia that had immigrated into the U.S. are suddenly going back because they were kind of being pushed out. But what they had is they knew how to run social gatherings. So even though we were we were part of a kingdom, the king was so far away that we don't have the same society built up as in other countries. We don't have, you have this little bit of uh, high society and then everything else, you don't have a middle society. And then the workers, you just have high society and workers. So it is different here in Iceland. So suddenly you have this vacancy in the market that people suddenly have free time. And again, suddenly people are getting paid for the fish. You're not just trading the wool for something else. You are moving away from trading over to getting paid for your products. And that means you suddenly have a little bit of money. And... um. Most of kind of you get the scouts coming to Iceland 1910. We at similar time, uh, it's called UMFI or Ungmanafielag. So that is group that is actually contributing to sports. So we're getting sports into Iceland. And all of these groups that are coming into Iceland at this time, they are non-alcoholic unions still today. Even though it is known in other countries that alcohol is part of it. In Iceland, it is not. It is, they are alcohol-free unions. So suddenly people had free time, they could do it. And we get prohibition before the US. And it's kind of funny because we were drinking two units per week while the Danish were in six units per week. So we get alcohol ban, which makes no sense whatsoever if you look at the consumption because we were drinking so much less alcohol than everyone else. And still we get prohibition. 
But again, the guys that could vote were white, middle-aged, educated men. And most of those guys were actually in these Templars unions. So of course they voted no alcohol. And part of it was also because people were suddenly having money, the small part of the high society wanted to make sure that they kept it. Because if you were working for the government, you were a consult or something like that, you were always allowed to have the alcohol. It was just the rest that was had the ban. So that's familiar. Yeah. So five years later, the Spanish people go, actually, if we can't pay for the salt fish and red wine, white wine and port, we're going to stop buying the fish. So everything is allowed back. So strong liquor and then red wine and white wine is allowed back. But the beer was banned until 1989. So, yeah, there was no beer in Iceland until 1989, which also makes that relationship Icelanders have such a weird relationship in the 20th century to the alcohol because of that ban. So you used to be able to go to a bar and buy something that was called fake beer. So you bought a beer that was low 2.5 and then they added a shot of vodka into it to increase the uh, alcohol. But you were allowed to, if you if you went abroad, you could take, you could bring a certain amount of beer back into the country. And this whole time, we have a running brewery that was only brewing for the uh, government. And also then in the, what, 40, 1950s, the U.S. Navy built the Navy base at Keflavik Airport. Mm-hmm. So they sold beer to, to the uh, U.S. Navy the entire time. The ban was. So for uh, for listeners, if uh, it's been a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months at this point, since we've had on Dr. Shrad, Dr. Mark Lawrence Shrad, who wrote um, Smashing the Liquor Machine, A History of Prohibition. And uh, one of the topics that he goes into that we didn't go into in the interview that is relevant here is the military base problem, the military canteen problem, where through military canteens, people all over the world got around prohibitions by selling to the Americans on the military basis. So um, there's a reason not to skip an episode because <laughs> things always tie back to something like that. And it's, it's ridiculous. And yet it's so commonplace that it, it, it bears repeating. Uh, so with the, with the whiskey laws in, in Iceland, I mean, you're Amverk is, is the only, distillery the only whiskey distillery um we are the only whiskey distillery that is selling products that's They're selling products okay yeah. so there is another one that is uh somewhere in the process of getting products on market um in the total we have six distilleries in iceland uh we are the we and the other guy we are the only two that is actually making spirit from raw materials everyone else import their spirit mm-hmm. most of them redistill it and season it or season it and then redistill it but uh, you will have a lot of icelandic distilleries that are essentially bottling plants that have products 
so are the let's say the other the other four not you and and the other one in the process of making whiskey those other four as as bottling plants as um i guess we would also call them rectifiers no no there are four that own their own distilling equipment and they are making gin Mm. and vodka by redistilling so okay not making it from grain and up or raw material and up because that is kind of the trickiest or most expensive part in a way Mm -hmm. and then you will have a few other distilleries that are essential bottling plants yeah gotcha okay so the it's just fascinating um (laughs) so i I have so many more questions about this, but I want to make sure we get to the distillery itself and to and to the product. So, um, just going forward with that, I got to start with the Icelandic barley that you yeah. have now. So I'm a a big fan of exploring barley profiles. Uh, you know, my stuff with Waterford is probably the best example of that. I just love Waterford and um, I'd say rye varietals in yeah. the U.S. as well. I love tasting the different grains and what they do. And when I tried the uh, Floki single malt, the intensity of the barley was was immediate. It was palpable. Um, I know you in the in the history that you've given, there's been barley, then there wasn't barley, then there was bad barley. Eventually, you got to a place where you have barley that can grow given the right conditions. Um, what is it about that Icelandic barley that when it works and when you can grow it, that makes it so intense and it, flavorful? It is actually quite simple. It is the ratio between starch and protein. And that is, we have tried it. It We don't see difference in the field. We see different between years, meaning how good the growing season was or how cold it was then we will see different in the flavor profile, but we don't see difference in which type of field because now we grow in two different, really different types of fields. So at our own farm, we have old wetlands, meaning we have more of nitrogen in them, heavy soil, like heavy dark soil. So if it's really rainy, it's not so good there. That means most of it is gonna drown. So to counter strike that, we also rent farms that are mainly sandy farms or fields. So a lot of volcanic ash in that. And if it's really rainy, those fields are going to do so much better than our fields. But if it's really dry summer, our fields are going to do better because soil keeps water better than sand. We don't see taste difference between those two fields. We see difference between the summer. So if we have essentially summer that is not too dry, not too wet, so both of the fields are going to go good, you don't see, you can't taste the difference between the soil, but you can taste the difference between the growing season itself. What is the variety going to give you in that type of season? That's fascinating. The, uh, I guess we also have to dig into what is the volcanic soil? And the volcanic ash do for you is well, i mean i i'm i'm a huge i should say fans i'm a huge fan of anything coming from volcanic soils whether yeah. it's italy uh south america iceland like 
there's something now, about it clearly that's different. Have you so. looked into coming to travel to Iceland and see photos of the Black Sand Beach? No, I haven't. No. So it's really popular. People think there was like one Black Sand Beach in Iceland. No. Hmm. We have one beach that has no black sand on it. Rest of them are black sand beaches. Hmm. So volcanic ashes or or volcano ash that we get up so it is different again if you go really deep into how geologically it works um we are on the um we are in the middle of the uh european plate and the north american plate and iceland is being pulled apart and we're getting fresh uh lava coming up from the centrum of the earth that means it's more it is not sour, it's it's plastic. Oh, not sour. Now I can't remember the word. Oh, um, uh, it's below right, seven. Um, if you do the pH, you will always have it below seven. Right. So yeah. So acidic. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's in a way fresh lava. Where you have um bedrock that is more tighter, not this area that means that usually you have lava that has been kind of melted down again and then it comes up again so but we are being pulled apart and you're always getting fresh lava up. so it's black it's not oh it's it's not <laughs> red mainly it is black um so volcanic ash here in iceland is means that we have had big volcano eruptions not only that stop the airport right. <laughs> but and also close to our farm we have Mount Hekla which was talked about as a mountain to gate a uh, gate to hell in I think there are around stories around 1600 Mount Hekla is talked about the gate to hell wasn't it Brendan Fraser who played in the movie that they went in they were supposed to go into right, Hekla right. Right, journey to the center of the earth. Yes, that yes, one, and yes. that in that story, Hakla is the gate to that. So, but Hakla is a big volcano, and once he erupts, he actually will, depending on where the eruption is occurring on the mountain, in which direction. But sea has ruined a lot of land underneath, and can distribute a lot of volcano and. The fields that we're using that are not our own farm, they are in her path. So this is lava from Hekla and, of course, other other volcanoes as well. But then you have more sandy type of of soil. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. The the geographic differences and the topological differences can <clears throat> can make such difference. And when you have this is me speculating, but when you have an island, as you say, you're constantly getting fresh lava, fresh land, if you will, yeah. from from being pulled apart. I think they talk um, about on average is like two centimeters per year that Iceland grows. I mean that that's significant. Yeah. When yeah, that that's pretty significant. The average plate tectonic is about one to two millimeters per year. So you're going about 10, 20 times as fast. It's it's you no know, it doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, geologists will realize, oh, that's a lot. The yeah. one geologist who listens will be like, oh, that's a lot. Um, 
so it's uh it's i love it i i want to visit just to to see it i it's incredible so the so this icelandic barley is again when it grows when it when it is successful i, I just have to say the the intensity that's the word that keeps coming to mind is just mm. intense it's not um young it doesn't taste young it doesn't taste uh we use the word grainy here sometimes when we want yeah. to describe something that's kind of that still tastes young still tastes like you can taste the mash and the fermentation mm. it's not like that no it's yeah. more you taste the, the soil of the earth and yeah the hay the grass it kind of gives you mm. more of those type of notes and not so much yeah. rainy notes but more exactly. of the soil and, and the land and and the grass yeah yeah it's it's really something and i would honestly I, I enjoyed the Floki single malt anyway, so I would still recommend it to people. But even if I hadn't enjoyed it, I would still recommend trying it to see what that barley profile is like, mm -hmm. because you will notice immediately that it's different. Yeah. Um. So, uh, going back to that, the so the beginning of this whole idea was: can we produce a whiskey in Iceland? from barley grown here and i mean the answer clearly is yes yeah you can <laughs> you know with the caveats of you know does the is it temp is the temperature right is the climate right basically if the barley that you have is successful in growing yes we can make whiskey from it yeah um so once you have that kind of foundational part done and you can say yes and we start creating. Uh, what does your whiskey making process look like? So we are a little bit lucky that we are starting a new industry. That means you can pull all the information that has been built up for the past 100, 150 years and use what you get. And kind of, so we, we work, of course, we work closely to what is done in Scotland and Europe, and we have to work by the European regulation. But we also had the chance of doing the process much more uh, up to date, if you can say so. So we mm -hmm. pull information from US, how whiskey is produced in the US. We pull information on how it's done in Europe, in Ireland, in Scotland, in Japan, we were able to pull information from all over the world and then figure out what fitted the barley that we had. And again, you have to make the, the barley has to be your focal point. How can I use the barley? So um, we use, so we do, we have a semi ton and we do in-grain fermentation and in-grain first distillation. And one of the part was it was really, really expensive when we were starting out to get the mash filter. And now we're kind of stuck with this because this gives us so much more of the oils and the flavor by boiling it to do the first distillation. It gives us so much of the flavor from it that we don't want to lose today. And then we have the second distillation where we take the heart for um, the barrels. And then we get to the aging process and we did a trials to start with what 
type of oak would fit best with our spirit. And again, you always just need to focus on your own spirit. You can't look at other distilleries and go like, oh, they use this, this must work for me. We had just to do trial and error. And we figured out for us, the American oak fits best with our spirit. And then we are gonna come to the question of 12 year old whiskey. So the aging process in Iceland is quite different. We have such a low moisture in the air that I always look at the barrels like they're breathing, they're pushing and pulling, that we are having much more rapid aging here in Iceland than what we can compare to, to Scotland. And we're also losing a little bit more. So our angel share is about 4%. Uh, we kind of went the way that um, for few reasons, we have old freezer containers as our warehouses. And we do Dundage in a way, type of Dundage style warehousing. Except we always put two barrels on a pallet together and then we can stock them three stories up or three barrels up. And this is done because if we get big earthquakes, uh, not if, it's when we get the big earthquakes, it's less right. chance <laughs> that they will fall down if they're only three stories high. And if they fall down, it's less chance that they will break. Having them in the isolation of these, we don't put, plug the freezer containers in. We're just using the isolation. Mm -hmm. um, we minimize a little bit the fluctuation in temperature. Like for the past week, we have gone from, well, now it's around minus 10. We went up to plus 10 in a day. So you can have a temperature fluctuation in a day that is 20 degrees, even though it's minus 20, and then you go up to a zero, it is a 20 degrees temperature fluctuation. So we have a lot of fluctuation in temperature. So having them in the um, freezer containers means that we minimize this a little bit. We manage a little bit to control how much the fluctuation isn't as quick as in the weather, which is good. But then also because again, uh, Montagla is quite close to our farm and right. We don't know. She's ten years late now, so we're we're kind of waiting for her to erupt. It means that we can send in trucks and kind of empty out the farm in, in five to six hours, if the volcano erupts on our side of the mountain and the lava is coming our in our direction. We are actually able to pull everything out of the farm. So a few reasons why we use the freezer containers, and also, if not, this would be something that would have to go into really don't know how they rework freezing containers. At least we give them a little longer lifetime because they're not qualified to do sea transport anymore, but we can use them for this. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Pocono Whiskey. Sitting just south of Auckland on the North Island of New Zealand, Pocono is one of the Pacific Rim's newest distilleries. Founded by whiskey industry veteran Matt Johns, Pocono set out to create a uniquely New Zealand single malt whiskey, one that would bring the lush subtropical terroir into the world's most recognizable category of malt spirit. I've been able to try their origin and their discovery series, as well as a single barrel double matured in ex-bourbon, and each were truly fantastic. And in case you're wondering whether I really do get to try these things that I talk about or whether I even like them, I'm here to tell you yes to both. If I don't like it, I don't have to talk about it. And I can't stop talking about Pocano to anyone who will listen. 
As of March 2023, Pocono is just starting to come out into the U.S. market with a rapidly growing footprint. I sometimes say that there are distilleries to watch. This is one to watch while sipping their already world-class single malts. Check out my episode with Matt and Pocono in late March, and order your bottle of Pocono New Zealand single malt today. Hey, whiskey ringers. I hope you've been taking advantage of that podcast-only code for the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. They've got around 20 bottlings coming out each month, and there's never a shortage of new things to explore. To take advantage of this podcast-only offer, please go to smwsa.com, that's Scotch Malt Whiskey Society of America, and put in code WRP for Whiskey Ring Podcast at checkout for 25% off your first year subscription. That's fascinating. The logistics involved of having to... This is the first distillery we've spoken to where we have to think about, okay, if an if an eruption comes your way, how fast can you evacuate the farm and the distillery? Pretty sure that's the first time we've talked about that. So, but gladly you have thought about that. So it's again, when you live in Iceland, having a volcano eruption or earthquakes, this is normal to us. It's normal for us to think about it. And we saw these beautiful barrel racks. I think our distillery has them and they are so beautiful because you can just put one barrel up and then the next one and they and you can see them all and you just have a full wall so for for expedition and stuff it's beautiful so we called them up and they were not that expensive and then i went like oh did you earthquake prove them and the guy in the phone went like i'm sorry what did you say i said did you earthquake proof the racks are they earthquake proof and he was like, we haven't had earthquake here since I don't know when. Nope, we don't earthquake proof anything in in England. It's like, okay, we can't buy this because mm-hmm. we are going to have the earthquakes. We know that. So you need to make sure that the housing, the racks and everything is earthquake proof. So, of course, we have looked a little bit down to uh, Japan for those. Mm-hmm. But then again, you need to have, you, you want to have the money. For it so using the dented style using the freezing container it's it kind of saves a lot of ifs and whens to use the freezing containers so. i keep thinking, thinking of, 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 uh, of japan as an example of um obviously a very different climate but um this idea of you have a, an island an island chain very low area of arability it's mostly mountainous, a lot of volcanic activity, um, also very high population density there, obviously higher than higher than Iceland, but um don't have that problem. Yeah, yeah. But uh still this is a problem of, of earthquakes, of mm-hmm. in their case, tsunamis, um volcanism. And yeah, they 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 proof it as much as possible against it and they a lot of for them for japan and japanese history they imported barley because what it was cheaper to import it than it was to grow it on site and we're talking importing it from central europe it's the same for us it would be cheaper for us to import the barley but then we would just be producing scottish whiskey in iceland right essentially yeah and we didn't want that exactly and it also has to do with um, we are willing to pay higher price for the barley, meaning a farmer that is selling us barley, 
his farm is more likely to be sustainable because it is expensive to run a farm in Iceland. And most of the farms in Iceland are small family owned farms. So it is has also to do with a part is we are lucky that we have a chance of living in this country, but we also want to contribute to that our children can live in this country still. Yeah. yeah. It's and you mentioned earlier you don't face the same um pests and no. such that continental Europe would face or, or the US would face. So you don't need the fungicides and the pesticides and all of that. Yeah. Um before diving for the last segment into the products themselves, you mentioned you get, you know, it's drier there, less humidity in the air, you get about four percent angel share, which is about you know about double what you would average in Scotland. Um you are of course on a higher latitude yeah. than that. You're um you said you get you're high enough that you get those 24 hour daylight days. From from May until right. August in a way. Then you have like you right now we are having the light from around seven it's bright and until 7.38 in the evening. So you don't have the darkness anymore. But again, in the winter, you have about four hours of daylight. Mm -hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not a lot. It's not a lot. No. And so with the, I'm trying to think of the exact question I want to ask on that. So the, in addition to the lower humidity, yeah, and lower moisture content in the air. Are there other factors that you think lead to uh, a faster aging process on Iceland, despite what you would necessarily think of as a shorter age, as a I'm sorry, a longer aging process? Mm. Because there are other things that well, would lead I to that. I think it's mainly that um, there is again because we use freezer containers, daylight isn't a factor in the barrels mm. and we are doing a trial actually so close to our farm again these caves that predates we are mm. actually storing three barrels in one of the caves and those caves are always four degrees it doesn't matter how cold or how warm it is outside it's always damp four degrees in those caves so it's really interesting to see the difference in the aging there versus the farm and we're talking about it's within 10 kilometers radius from each other um, I think mainly it has to do with the moisture content for us, but it also has to do with, we see that we are not losing so much ethanol in it. So, uh, normally in Scotland, you will lose a lot of ethanol. So you, if you're loading them at 62 and you're emptying them 12 years later, you're down to 50 something for us for six years, we only maybe lose 2% of ethanol. So we are losing the ethanol and the water in a really similar rate or speed. So not like in Kentucky where you lose more water, so they become stronger. In Scotland, it's mm -hmm. the other way around. We seem to be losing it at really similar rates. So we are we are emptying them at really similar strength as we loaded them. 
So that gives difference. <laughs> but again, we're young, sure, yeah. so we're still figuring out where our optimum aging is. I don't believe it's going to be 12 years ever. I think then we have passed the good point. I think it's um, in my mind, it is six to eight years, which we are hitting barrels to, and they are fantastic in that time. I don't necessarily think you need to store stuff for 35 years, so it's the best thing you can get. Um, you lose a lot of it. It's it's sad. All of the energy and everything that we have just lost. Uh, but each mm. just has to find their optimum, and we are just still on the path of finding our optimum. There's a lot to be said for that, and I said that in other podcasts. It's about when your product is ready, not <laughs> hitting that age statement and um yeah. if you're going along with kind of what they do in scotland and more importantly what they do with the eu once you're past that three-year point then it's it's up to you as to when yeah. you think the product is best um and i will definitely try to find uh you know when it when it's ready and when it comes out i would love to taste it because i think the the single malt that i tasted was closer to three years old yeah well, right now we are mainly bottling three years old to build up the stock so we can have older later on. Uh, it's a little bit problematic because we usually sell everything that we are managing to produce and hence we have to go into expansion mm. as to being able to keep on growing. So that is kind of the next, next thing we're going to focus on is, is being able to distill more. And that is a part of what we have done is we have automated all of our stills. So we don't need to run... So we can minimize the staff part of the distillation. So it will just, we ran it, what, 300 times and we wrote everything down. And we can also see there is a difference when the weather is, um, uh, when we have a low pressure area over the country, our yeast mm -hmm. or the, the fermentation will actually erupt out of the tanks. So we do see difference in, um, in the distillation depending on air pressure. We see that a lot here. Um, yes, which, which could be really interesting of, of taking out distillates when we are having these really low pressure and keeping them separate. So that is one of the things that we want to do. Um, but mainly this is, um, now I lost, totally lost what I was saying. Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> It's okay. No, it, it, the expansion and and needing to expand is uh, yeah. it's a good problem to have. It's it clear is. there's demand, and people want to see what you're what you're making, what you're creating. Mm. And as I said, I certainly want to. I mean, I think the three year old single malt is uh, delicious as it is. A great barley profile. It's definitely a, a grain forward spirit, but in the the right way, I'll say. Thank you. And yeah, and so you. I know we're uh, we have about twenty minutes left, so I want to make full use of that time. Yep. And uh, so you mentioned, as part of Iceland's history, you had traded with um, Scotland and Spain and uh, Western Europe, let's say, uh, particularly with barrels, and you still get barrels from Scotland and Spain. Um, I think I heard on another either interview or podcast that as much as you can, you try to use virgin oak or newer oak. So that was mm -hmm. a thing 
in the beginning, we were buying in 10 barrels at a time. And the cool thing is they were not used to having such a small distillery is dealing with them. So we bought first 10 barrels I bought or we bought, we had five of them brand new and five of them bourbon barrels from different bourbon distilleries. And we figured out we liked this one best and we wanted that type of barrels. So when we talked to the cooperage, the answer was, yes, you can have it. We sell them 200 at a time in a container. It took me a month to fill the first barrel that we bought by distilling each every single day. That was before we got our big sale. Now we are filling about it's a little over a half a cask each day with the stills that we have today. So we are still a small producer, but we are focusing on growing. Um, so you have that indifference. Okay, so get the barrels in, you're filling about half a, a cask a day now, which is, uh, yeah. A, yeah, you're right, it is, it is small, but it's but growing. Um, so I just wanted to talk about a couple of the other products as well, in addition to the single malt. Um, I'll have reviews and tasting notes of the single malt and the uh, sheep dung smoke, because those are the two that I got to try. Uh, and of course, we're going to talk about the sheep dung smoke as well. But before that... Uh, the I want to talk about the Icelandic aquavit. Yeah. That you're making. Yeah. So um I think this ep this other episode should come out before this one with um Vikra Distillery in northern Minnesota. And um they're making an aquavit that's more in the Danish style, despite the mm -hmm. founder being Norwegian, but it works. Um so what is your style of aquavit? So in Iceland, the main flavor in aquavit is caraway. We love caraway. Caraway can grow wild in Iceland. It is brought over in around 1200 as a medicinal herb. So you will find it especially in, uh, there's a small island outside of Reykjavik, which used to have uh, a monastery in there. So monks used to run hospitals, so they used to use herbs. And you could also find it close to uh, Skálholt, which is where one of the bishops used to live. So, um, but it manages to grow wild in Iceland itself. Uh, we have been experimenting on actually growing it in fields and it, it goes up and down, <laughs> but it was not last summer. It was the summer before. It was a beautiful summer and we had managed to grow really well. And then in August, late August, we got a wind that was what, 53 meters per second and the field disappeared. There was no grain left on the field. It just blew away the next summer because the caraway is a plant that has to grow for two years so first year it will bloom and then the next year they, it will come with seeds the next year we could just see where it had just, just it was right. white all around our farm just white flowers everywhere it's like yeah that's our fault but now we have figured out a way to um harvest it by using the compound that is here in iceland so we are being able to grow the caraway ourselves on the farm. And caraway hasn't been grown in Iceland ever, not for commercial resorts. People used to grow it themselves just at the farm because we use this in cheese, bread, cleaner, which is like type of a twisted donut that we have had for years. And then Leuvabrit, which is a really, really thin cake that we make just before Christmas. And then you 
boil the caraway in the milk and then you add flour to it and then you roll it out really, really thinly and then you carve into it really beautiful photos and then you deep fry it from lamb fat mainly. It is fantastic. It's really good. That sounds delicious. It is delicious. Yeah. We only do it around caraway flavors. And get it. You can only get it in December. Well, then I know when I need to come. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that sounds, it does sound delicious. I love caraway. I love the flavor of it. Mm. Um, so for us, donuts as well. Yeah. So for us, the caraway is the main flavor. We use our own spirit. So it gives also this grainy or these grass hay notes gives to it. And then we use eight other herbs that are species of Iceland or flora of Iceland. So we are, we have the um, thyme, the Nordic thyme, Icelandic moss, um, sweet kelp. So we use other and, uh, herbs around it, with it, to complement it. But Icelandic people don't drink much. Akkoid, usually everyone kind of went on that day and mm -hmm. when around 20 when you drank way too much of it and you can't touch it again. But mm -hmm. then we allow people to try our alcohol and people go like, this is so much better than what I used to try as a kid. I was like, or not a kid, a young person. Sure. <laughs> yeah, we know it's good and it is really good. I will, I will search it out. I, I'm getting more into clear spirits and gins and aquavits and I, I would love to, to try some of that. Mm -hmm. And um, before the last question is, I saw it that in t around 2020, you got to try to grow rye oh, as well. It is so good. I can't yeah. wait. So yeah, um, here in Iceland, you have to have, uh, the barley is always a spring variety, meaning you you harvest the same year as, as you, you put it down. Um, mm -hmm. But for the rye, you have to have a winter variety. So you're actually sowing a year before you're going to harvest. And we are going to have a barrel of, or two barrels of rye, three-year-old whiskey, in August this year. And it tastes, oh my God, I love it. It is totally my favorite product right now. It is the, luckily I, I own the distillery so I can take bottles home every now and then because we had to mm. try the barrel. Um. <laughs> I am looking so forward to being able to release F onto the market. And the name is F, which is uh, the Icelandic letter. Um, but it is so good. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait to share it with the market. But uh, um, U.S. is kind of a tricky market for us. So probably it's going to be more European sold. It's a tricky market for us. It's a tricky market for us in this in the yeah. states. So yeah. yeah, but no, I, I seeing your reaction was so visceral. Is um, you know, this is an audio only podcast, but still, there's a visceral reaction. I want to try that rye. I will find a way to get a bottle or a sample of something. Yeah, when it's ready. Um. So you know, just in the last few minutes. We've got to talk about the the Floki sheep dung. Oh, of course. So, so a lot of people I, think this is a gimmick. 
Mm -hmm. but it's not. So again, now we're going into Icelandic history and Icelandic uh, flora mainly. And the Icelandic flora in Iceland is low bushes. We don't have trees here. We don't have these tall, beautiful trees. Um, we don't have coal and we don't have gas. And prior to using the geothermal energy to heat, we would have to rely on imported goods. So it is hard to heat the house when you don't have anything to burn, but we always have had sheep. And if you look at how we used to build houses prior to concrete and hot water, you would use torf and stones and you would kind of layer it up on the walls and you would have as little wood as possible. You would have wood in the frame and then we're talking about central poles and then just the roof and not the whole roof because you would only, you would put, um, you would put like branches between the big wood. So you would not put good wood all the way through. You were, you had to save the wood because the wood was expensive and you would reuse the wood if you, needed to move, you usually moved the house with you. You didn't leave it there. But because you're building out of torf and stone, you have to rebuild the house every 50 years or so because they are going to collapse and disappear in 50 years. Um, but sheep houses, you would have them usually a little bit further away from the farm. You would have the cows and the goats actually inside of the farm to get the heat from them. So either you would have it linked to the farm. Somewhere in the south, here in the south, you usually slept on top so the animals were underneath and then you had the sleeping area on top to get the warmth from the animals um but when you put animals or you put the sheep in and again through the winter you have to have animals inside for about eight months a year so sheep do get to roam free from may until september where we actually go up in the mountains and collect them depending on years Sometimes we have to go earlier because we had, what, I think it's six years ago, we had really bad weather in September and we lost about 2,000 sheep minimum. Oh my, yeah. But still, because people knew that the weather was coming, you were sending people up in the mountains earlier than usual to try to collect as much as possible was down to save them. Uh, what, two years ago, they couldn't release them until end of June. It was just too cold until end of June to allow them to go up in the mountains. So they had to keep them in the housings longer. So you had housing where they are staying inside for the entire winter and they will trample the shit together and they will get hay on it and you will have a buildup throughout the year. And if you want to reuse the house, you have to dig out of the house. You have to take this out of the house because in two years then you will not fit them in. It's just how it works if you build it and then you have to hire the roof and you don't have the energy you have to dig this up and you dry it for about two years find a windy place which is not hard in Iceland dry it for two years and then you have a burning material and this material is, is what we used as a fuel this was the main fuel resource we do have peat in Iceland but again the peat layer is really most of the time it's really really little and we can still see Pete's graves that were taking around 1,000 
so it doesn't disappear. You're actually doing environmental harm by taking peat in Iceland. Of course, peat was used for heating material or burning material until the 19th century, but not as much as the sheep dung. So Icelandic people are quite used to using sheep dung to smoke with. And also because this smokes, this isn't such a good fire that you get. You don't get so good temperature from it. Mainly you will get a lot of smoke. You do get heat again, but mainly you get a lot of smoke. This smokes horribly. It's not like coals where you can light them on fire and there is almost no smoke. You will have a lot of smoke. So you would basically hang meat and fish and sausages just in the roof of the kitchen and use that as to preserve the food. Of course, later on and today, we have special houses or smoke houses where we smoke salmon and lamb meat and trout. And always around Christmas, you get like triple smoked lamb meat, which you can eat raw and it's it's delicious. <laughs> so using the sheep dung was, of course, the normal thing to do when you produce smoked whiskey in Iceland. It, it makes sense. I, I agree with you. The majority will think of it as a gimmick um, because yeah. we we see gimmicks that are that look similar elsewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but in reading about it and, and hearing about it, um, yeah, it, it is it's tradition. It's something that is very normal. I will fully admit that uh, by by name alone, I had a bit of a psychological block to it to <laughs> to be like, okay, what's going to happen here? But having said that, once I tasted it, I and I have a video of me tasting it because a friend asked me, and I was like, okay, I'm going to indulge you on this. It wasn't what you expect. Like I'm, I'm sure if you're Icelandic and you try it. It is what you expect because you know what that smoke is like. Mm-hmm. But for a non-Icelandic audience, it's very, it's certainly very earthy and and hay forward, and and you get that. But to be blunt and and a, perhaps a bit crass about it, it doesn't smell like sheep. It doesn't oh. smell like dung. It, it's not uh, any any more than peat does and frankly if you think Pete does then you're probably not going to like this but if you're you know but otherwise you know i i'm always someone who will try anything once in the whiskey world and i promised i was going to try that and really it was something to be experienced and i i encourage people to try to get past that block that i had that i'm sure you have to and try it i think it's hilarious to say sheep done smoke we, we think it yeah. is so funny. Uh, it gives uh, it gives a sweeter taste of the smoke. It's kind of weird to it say it, but the smoke is so yeah. much sweeter in the taste than if you would get it from peat. Yeah, it doesn't taste acrid. It's not overly vegetal. It's more smoky no. than anything. Yeah. yeah. So I, I really enjoyed it. Um, so if you see it, it's not a gimmick. I encourage you to try it. All right. I have taken up plenty of your time today. Eva, thank you so much for taking the time to go through everything we touched on, Icelandic history, the geology, the Einverk distillery, the Floki single malt and products. 
Um, there will be more information, of course, in the show notes, uh, links to where you can purchase, to social media, to follow them, to all of this. But um, in the meantime, just again, thank you for coming on and letting us explore your distillery and explore the history around it. Oh, thank you. And um, just hope to see you in Iceland. Same here, same here. All right. Um, hang on with me for just a second, and then I will yeah. let you go. All right. And this has been another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. I will see you next week. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Whiskering Podcast. If you like what you hear, please go ahead and click that subscribe, follow, or like button. Leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice, and let me know what you want to hear. You can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month, barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles that I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. You can follow on Facebook at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or join the Facebook group, the WhiskeyRingers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers, thank you for the support, and see you next time.